May that be our attitude towards the word of God, seeing them as the words of life, more precious and valuable to us than silver and gold. We pick back up in our series on the parables of Jesus. This morning I invite you to turn in God's holy word to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 44 through 46. This is the reading of the word of God. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let us pray. Lord, we just sang that your words are truth and life. They impart to us spiritual wisdom. And we ask that you would open our eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit to receive your word this day and to apply it to our lives, that we may value it and hold it close to us and cherish it in spite of what the dark and fallen world may say about it knowing and trusting that it is your very voice, breathed out and inspired by your Holy Spirit. Through Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. If I were to say the word treasure, what image pops into your mind? Perhaps you think of stories or movies of pirates' treasure. You think of bank robbery movies like Ocean's Eleven or other such movies where a vast sum of money is stolen from a bank or from a rich person. Perhaps you think of Scrooge McDuck from the 90s cartoon DuckTales, or maybe that's just me in my own childhood. Perhaps you think of your retirement portfolio or your 401k or your reputation, your car, your garden, your dreams in life or your house or your family. The list could go on and on, but the reality is is that we all have things important and valuable to us in our lives. But of all those things that are important and valuable to us, there's always one that is most important. It is supreme in importance. And in our parable this morning, Jesus teaches us as his disciples that the kingdom of God is so valuable that it is worth sacrificing everything to gain it. I'll say that again. The kingdom of God is so valuable that it is worth sacrificing everything to gain it. Two points. First, I want us to see the varied recipients of the kingdom. The varied recipients of the kingdom. In the first parable of treasure in a field, the man who finds the treasure is a hired worker. The field does not belong to him. According to the rabbis and the rabbinic tradition, if this man who finds the treasure in the field, if he lifted that treasure out of the field where he found it, he would be required to hand it over to the landowner, whoever owns that field. 
However, if he can purchase that field, if he leaves it there and doesn't lift it out, then everything in that field would belong to him, so the treasure would become legally his. This is what actually happens in the, in the parable. He, this man, he finds a treasure hidden in his field, and he's so overcome with joy, he sells all of his possessions. He sells all that he has, the text says, to buy that field with this incredible, valuable treasure. A couple of years ago, a 10-year-old boy in Northern Ireland received a metal detector for his birthday and he was using it with his father and his cousin uh, near a river where they discovered a large mud-covered object. And after washing it off, it turned out to be half of a rusted old sword with a very ornate handle on that sword. And it, it, it was discovered to be a sword from the late 1600s or early 1700s. And here's what the boy said during his interview after the discovery. I felt excited because it was a sword and it was just there and I didn't really expect anything too big. He had no expectations. He received this gift and he's using it and he finds treasure. And it was just lying there. The man working in the field wasn't expecting to find anything either. Perhaps he is plowing the field to get it ready for the planting of seeds Perhaps he's cleaning ground to make way for a new construction, a new silo, or, or a new house or something. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But the sense of the parable is that the man did not go out into this field with a metal detector trying to find treasure. The second man, by contrast, is not a lower to middle class worker. He's a wealthy merchant who is actively seeking treasure. He knows what is valuable, and he is diligently searching for fine pearls that he can trade in to increase his wealth and generate more business. In Jesus' day, the best quality pearls came from the Persian Gulf or from India, which means that this merchant was probably uh, widely and well-traveled. And he would go to great lengths to track down his product. During his search, he discovers an incredible pearl that makes all the other pearls in the world look like ordinary rocks. So what does this merchant do? He goes and he sells his business and all the other pearls that he has. All of his product and his business in order to buy this one Incredible pearl. These men could not be more different from one another. Their activity could not be more different from one another. One is a hired worker from the lower or middle class who works out in the field, either in farming or in construction, and he's just going about his business. The other is an upper class business owner, a self-made entrepreneur who is diligently seeking things of great value when he discovers that one pearl so great that he can retire because it is worth more than everything he currently possesses. And Jesus is saying that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's full of a variety of people from various backgrounds, cultures, and stations in life. Hebrews 11 talks about the hall of faith 
uh, and describes how some of God's people in the Old Testament were well off and they received many blessings and experienced many victories from the hand of Yahweh. Just think about Abraham, our King David. But other of God's people in the Old Testament, they were poor, they were persecuted, they were even martyred for their loyalty to Yahweh. Think of the prophets, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. We know from the book of Revelation that God's kingdom will ultimately consist of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and every family that exists upon this earth. Reverend David Strain from First Presbyterian in Jackson, Mississippi says, we don't all look alike and our stories don't all sound alike and that's the way it's supposed to be. Covenant children raised in the church never knowing a day away from the embrace of their savior and those who are converted by God's grace from no church background whatsoever. Black and white, rich and poor, Ivy League scholars and high school dropouts, high profile citizens and nobodies from nowhere are the types who belong in the kingdom through faith in Jesus, end quote. In other words, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew puts it, is not like an exclusive country club that only lets in a certain clientele. For the longest of time, the, uh, the Augusta National Golf Club was a male-only club, and it didn't even accept its first African-American member until 1990. The kingdom of God is not like that. It is open to all who turn by faith to Jesus and repent of their sins, whether they're a pagan or a prostitute or the president of a nation. Jesus said that whoever comes to him will never hunger or thirst. Jesus opened wide the nets of fishing for men to catch all kinds of people. He didn't say he would only accept men and not women or only Asians and not Americans, or only the poor and not the rich. Whoever means any kind of person, the promise of God in his word is that if you come to Christ by faith, your sins will be forgiven. He will not turn you back because of your cultural background, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic station in life. He will not turn you away if you come to him by faith. He won't turn you away no matter what you've done in your past. Paul is my favorite and go-to example. That first century terrorist who killed Christians. The Lord opened up his heart and converted him. The kingdom of heaven is open to all who receive Christ by faith. This means that we offer the gospel to all types of people. And if you've been with us when I've talked about the history of the ARP denomination, you know that this was one of the, the main things in the formation of the ARP in our background, was the, the free offer of gospel to all people indiscriminately. You had the hyper-Calvinists in the Church of Scotland saying that you can only preach the gospel to somebody who's showing signs of being elect. And once they show signs of being elect by, by mourning over their sin, then you offer them the gospel. No! You proclaim the gospel to all people. 
And you let the Lord do the work of opening their hearts. We don't only offer Christ to respectable people or only offer Christ to people of notoriety or ill repute. We don't only offer Christ to, to people who look like us and dress like us. We go to all and we testify about Christ before all. So the, the varied recipients of the kingdom. Second, I want us to see the supreme value of the kingdom. The supreme value of the kingdom. In both parables, we see what was valuable was first unknown or hidden, and then it was found, and finally it was bought at the expense of everything else. What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is hidden? Well, just like gold or diamonds or dinosaur fossils are hard to find, the kingdom of heaven, up to this point in time, has been concealed. It's been veiled. It's not easy to be seen. It's actually rather difficult to find. Up to this point, in, uh, up to this point of Jesus' incarnate ministry, it's been a secret. And it still is in a certain sense. Because we do not naturally have eyes to see the kingdom of God, let alone enter into it. Unless you are born again, Jesus says in John 3, you can't even see the kingdom of God. It is invisible. It is unknown to those who have not been converted, to the unregenerate. The kingdom of heaven is not something that we can naturally find in our own fallen strength and power, and so it remains hidden. But then suddenly, seemingly circumstantial and out of nowhere, this treasure is found. Suddenly, the, we are able to see the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the Lord has worked in our hearts and given us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. He's broken down that heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. Both the field worker as well as the merchant, realizing the surpassing value of what they have found, they go and they sell all that they have to buy that field or to buy that treasure, to buy that pearl of great price. And now the treasure rightfully belongs to them. The emphasis of these parables focuses on the supreme value of what has been found. The men sacrifice, they give it all up in order to attain what they understand and see to be the most valuable thing of all. And look at what the scripture says in verse 44 about the field worker, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has joyfully. It's not an obligation. It's not a burden or a hardship. He willingly and joyfully gives up everything that may be of some value in order to have the one thing that is of the greatest value. He gives up everything that may have some value to have the one thing that is of greatest value. R.T. France comments, quote, Once the kingdom of heaven is truly understood, nothing else can compare with it. In value, end quote. The kingdom of heaven is of utmost value, and it's worth surrendering everything in order to attain it. It's worth surrendering our pride. It's worth sur surrendering our greed. It's worth surrendering our hopes and dreams. I had dreams when I was entering into college of, of going into the field of computer science and becoming rich 
and wealthy. That was my dream. That was my aspiration, entering into college. I left it behind when I sensed the call of God into ministry. I left my dreams behind. Actually, God gave me a new dream. He gave me a, a new desire, and that was to serve him. And that was to serve him wholeheartedly in pastoral ministry. The kingdom of heaven is worth surrendering our idols of the heart. Letting go of that high-paying job, letting go of that drug addiction. It's worth letting go of anger and resentment. Whatever we have in our lives before conversion, before Christ, all those things are temporary compared to the eternal value of knowing Christ and being known by him. These are the things that are of eternal value. Enjoying the forgiveness of sins. Being reconciled to God. Being adopted as a child into his family so that you can now call him father. And approach him as father instead of judge. Being united to the true vine by faith. Being made a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Slowly being changed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory in the process of sanctification. Knowing that we will reach the finish line and receive the prize because God has promised it to us in his word. These are the things that are of surpassing utmost supreme value. These things are worth more than all the money, all the fame, all the prestige the world can offer. More valuable than all the sins unto which your heart tries to hold on. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, talking about the, the basic necessities of life, earthly life, will be added to you. The costly demand of Christian discipleship is rooted and based in the surpassing value of being in the kingdom of God by knowing Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The surpassing worth. Paul's identity as a Pharisee, as a member of the tribe of Benjamin, as a zealot for the Old Testament law, as an Israelite, as one who was circumcised, none of that was worth holding on to because of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 29, that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. What is he saying? He's saying that the call that Jesus places upon our life is more valuable than the things of this life that we want to hold on to. What does Job do? What does Job do when God takes everything away from him? And he had plenty. He was upper crust, ladies and gentlemen. Marriage, lots of children, wealth, servants. He had everything that one could have in the patriarchal time. 
And the Lord took it all from him. And what does Job do? The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All that is lost to me. My children are dead. My wife is telling me to curse God. The Chaldeans have come and stolen my camels. All my servants are gone. But one thing I know, my Redeemer lives. And though he slay me, in my flesh I shall see God. There are people today who have left all to follow after Christ. Many Christians in Africa and Asia, by openly identifying as Christians, they make themselves targets for Muslim and Hindu radicals. Christian preachers in Africa are resisting the appeal of the false health and wealth gospel that America is exporting over there, and they're trying to gain a solid handle on sound doctrine in order to rightly teach and preach God's word on the continent of Africa. Our denomination is starting a a new ministry through World Witness called Barnabas Ministry that will focus on training pastors in Rwanda as well as Pakistan. The Rwandan government has said you need a, a piece of paper from an accredited institution to be a pastor in Rwanda now. You can't just go around saying, you know what, I'm a pastor and I'm going to start a church. And so now Barnabas Ministry and and Lee Shellnuts, who used to be at Huntersville ARP, is is spearheading this ministry to train pastors in sound doctrine, in reformed teaching, as well as in Pakistan, to make Christ known. And these men who travel by foot, who don't have much, They know they're not going to get paid a lot as ministers of the gospel in the third world. But they know God's call on their life. They are committed to preaching Christ. And we are going to take from our vast wealth of resources here, knowledge and books and money, and we are going to invest it in them so that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Reformed doctrine, the Reformed understanding of Scripture will be proclaimed in Africa and in Pakistan in the hopes that many Muslims and Hindus and, and just pagan unbelievers will come to know Christ and that the church will be built up and established. And then there are those Muslim converts who have been alienated by their families and even risk their own lives by making it known that they follow Jesus the Messiah. In Matthew 19, we see an example of somebody who isn't willing to give it all up to follow Christ. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says he has kept all the commandments. And what does Jesus tell him? Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and follow after me. And what does the ruler do? He walks away from the king of the kingdom who's standing right there in front of him. And he walks away sad, it says. Sad. Why? Because he valued his earthly treasures more than following Christ. Now, I don't mean to imply that we should immediately walk out of here and sell all of our possessions and leave our families. That's not what I'm saying. We have an example in Zacchaeus. He only gives up about half of his wealth, which he had acquired sinfully. 
And there are parables that talk about wisely investing the master's money. But what these parables do cause us, require us to ask of ourselves is, where is my heart? Where is my heart? If I lost this thing, would I be utterly destroyed and devastated? Scripture tells us where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So if you're not treasuring Christ of utmost value, then Christ calls you and me to remove our heart from whatever that object may be and set it upon him and him alone as of utmost and supreme value. And to remove your heart from that object may require you to remove that object from your life, even if it is as something near and dear to you as your family members. When Jesus called his disciples, his first disciples, what were they doing? They were fishing in a boat. Some of them were fishing with their father, and what did they do? They immediately left the boat and left their father behind. They left that life behind to follow after Jesus. Scripture calls us to be prepared that if we were to lose it all, we would still have what is of utmost and supreme value, and that is Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins and salvation in his name. This may be one of the most challenging passages of Scripture for those of us living here in America or Western civilization today, given our relative wealth and comfort in life compared to what goes around in other parts of the world, even with high inflation and high gas and food prices, it's easy to let the shiny things of this world draw our eyes away from Christ, much like Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who enjoyed the Turkish delight so much that he was distracted from recognizing the white witch for who she truly was. Craig Blomberg writes, quote, Ours is a culture in which religious commitment, including Christian activity, functions as a kind of add-on to our real priorities. When convenient, we'll go to church or get involved in this or that program or small group. When not too much is at stake, we will witness or stand up for and model Christian integrity in the workplace. When we have a surplus, we'll give a little more to church or Christian causes, end quote. I saw a picture circulating online the other day that said this, church should be our excuse for missing everything else. Church should be our excuse for missing everything else. Why does that even need to be said? Because today everything else is an excuse for missing church. Church is low in our list of priorities. I don't feel good. I'm not going to go to church. I'm upset at this person. We disagree on something, and so I'm going to not go to church because I don't want to be around them. I stayed up too late on Saturday night, so I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to worship God with the corporate gathering of God's people. Is that denying ourselves? <laughs> Is that valuing what God calls us to do, to not neglect the assembling of ourselves together, to pursue him as being the most valuable of all things in this world? 
Matthew 16, 24 through 26. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Being a citizen of the kingdom is more valuable than anything and everything the world can offer put together. When we realize just how valuable the kingdom of God is, we should be willing to deny our sinful selves as well as the sinfulness of the culture around us, which does influence us and tempt us for the sake of pursuing Christ as of supreme value. To unbelievers, this parable shows that you cannot hold on to worldly treasures and try to hold on to Christ at the same time. You can't sprinkle a little bit of Christ on top of your sin and and think that's sufficient. Whatever it is that you're holding on to today, whatever excuse you're using to keep you from coming to Christ, let it go. Well, I just... I want to get things more settled. I want to be a little bit better off. I want to try to make myself better. Then I'll come to Christ. Well, I'm not ready to come to Christ yet because I want to party and live it up. But after I've done all of that and exhausted all that, then I'll come to Christ. No! Come to Christ today. For you do not know if tomorrow is granted to you. David Strain says, quote, To put your hand in the Savior's hand You must let go of the counterfeit treasures to which you have been clinging, end quote. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that those worldly treasures have never truly satisfied your heart. Only Christ can truly satisfy the deepest longing and desires of your soul. I've used this C.S. Lewis quote before, but it's a good one. He says, we are still making mud pies in a slum because we don't believe in an offer of a holiday at the beach. Our problem is not that we love pleasure too much. Our problem is that we are too easily pleased. End quote. The world keeps you in the mud. Well, Christ offers you that holiday at the beach. He offers you true peace and true joy and true contentment in himself an eternal life of heavenly bliss, the the blessed hope, as Ben refers to it in Sunday school. For you who do not know Christ today, come to Christ now, at this moment. See him for the treasure that he truly is, beyond all treasures. See his supreme value. Cast yourself at his mercy Acknowledging that you are a sinner, deserving death for your sins against a holy, eternal, infinite God. But trusting in the perfect and finished work of Christ to rescue and deliver you from your sins. And for us here today who do believe, this passage calls us to reflect on how we are living our lives. Does my life reveal that I treasure Christ first in my heart? Have I grown astray and my heart is now somewhere other than Christ? 
when I reflect upon how I use my time, my, my daily, my weekly, my monthly, my yearly calendar and my schedule, does it demonstrate that I am prioritizing Christ above all things, above my own comfort, above my own desires? Where is Christ calling you to be radical against that worldly treasure which is distracting you from Christ as your preeminent treasure? And that's going to be different for each of us. We're going to have different idols of the heart. We're going to have different things that we are, are treasuring and idolizing more than Christ. But where is Christ calling you to, to do radical spiritual warfare? Prayer, the word, the ordinary means of grace against that which is distracting you and drawing you away from Christ. Can you say, I will let go of fill in the blank because Christ is worth so much more. This world is passing away. Its treasures are losing their shininess. The greatest diamond or ruby, or sapphire in this world will come to nothing. But Christ will never lose his value. And the kingdom of God will never pass away. Amen and amen. Let us pray.